Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. In this episode, we are going to continue to explore the progressing problem of evil throughout the book of Genesis, but then look at what God's solution is and how we are invited into that rescue plan to contribute to the good in this world. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Hope you have a great day. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jenny Ann. So sweet. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat, guys. Grab a seat. And welcome, everyone, to Fellowship Greenville students. My name is Matt Dinsky. I'm the student pastor here at Fellowship Greenville, and I'm so glad you're here. I love you guys. I'm thankful you're here. I love you, Denisha. And, uh, and I want you to know, I want to remind you that um, we believe that God loves you. We believe you have a place to belong right here. Uh, that you have worth and value and that God uh, is excited that you're here as well. So thank you for being here. If you've been here over the past few weeks, uh, we've been in this series, Heaven and Earth Collide, because I'm convinced that the overall story of the Bible is so compelling and so beautiful and so good. I'm also convinced that most Christians uh, don't quite understand that story. And, and the, the narrative that they've developed is more uh, defined by like things they've heard or like things that culture assumes about God. And then over the years, it just prevails. And, and so we've kind of formed our narrative through all these weird pieces that aren't necessarily in the scriptures. And if you remember all the way back to week one when we kicked off this series, I said, uh, most people that I've encountered that claim to believe in Jesus think that the main story of the Bible is God created everything, he created you on this earth, and you live this life, and one day when you die, based on what you did or what you believe, you will either go to heaven or hell. That's what most people think the main story is, and all the way back in week one, I was saying, it's not. It, it's, not that it's, it's not that that narrative is untrue, it's not that you wouldn't find this in here, but that is like so in the background of what I think the main narrative, the main story of the Bible is. It is so much more compelling and alluring and beautiful and wonderful than just, hey, God made the earth. He, made, he put you on the earth. You live a certain amount of time, and when you die, you go to one or two places. Like, dude, there is so much more beauty in the story of God than simply that. And so we've been going over that for weeks and weeks and weeks. If you remember, uh, we had United Night last week, and so we took a break from this series. We had a great time in here, by the way, 265 people in here. It was almost, that's almost epic, y'all. Like, epic, we had 302 students. We had 302, thank, Jenny Ann is still hyped about epic, the only one still hyped about epic. Um, <laughs> it was like, what, what is, what is, Illinois is not a city, man. Like, I, I get it, okay, I get it. I get that, okay? I didn't make the cahoot, okay? All right. I'm not saying who did. I'm just saying. Um, so uh, we were on a break, but two weeks ago, I started what I said was kind of a part one of two, and we're going to continue that tonight. And so I'm going to retell the story I kicked two weeks, off, uh, two weeks ago off with, because I, I just think it's really beautiful, and I think it gets to the point of what we're talking about. A couple of years ago, I was with my son. He was three at the time. You guys, I don't know if you know this. I, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you know this. I have kids. Do you all know that? Is that shocking? Is that surprising? I never talk about them in here. I never talk about them. I, I never just like... I have three. I have three kids. Uh, six, three, six, three, and one and a half. Those are my kids. Uh, two boys, a little girl. Um, you guys are awesome. So, Trent, Gray, and Olive are their names. 
Yeah. yeah. That's their first name? Uh, Trent River is my oldest. Gray Woods is my middle. Olive Rain is my little girl. All right. Yes. Yes. Densky. All three last names are Densky, just like mine. Wouldn't you believe it? We chose those middle names because the scriptures say that God reveals himself through what he's made. And so we pray specific things for each of them. And so their middle name guides exactly how we pray for them. So, um, all right, here we go. Guys, I have kids. You know this. I love them. I cry about them often. Um, if you go to my Instagram page, it's like all I post. It's like my kids. Um, so a few years ago, I was on my way home from work, <clears throat> and there was a gentleman standing at a street corner up on Wade Hampton, had a sign, homeless, take anything, you know, help. And I, I, don't, I don't carry cash. I didn't have anything in the truck, um, but I don't live far from where he was. I was like, oh, man, let me just run home, and I'll make him a dinner and, and come back. And so I went home, and I whipped up a dinner asked my wife to help me put a dinner together. And I thought, my, my oldest was around three at the time, and I thought, oh, this will, this will be a great opportunity for my son uh, to go with daddy, to, to go and give something to someone, and then to learn from that and, you know, to ask questions and, and start to learn generosity and blessing others and understanding how we've been blessed and to, shower, to, to dispense that to others. And so I just wanted to bring him along. So we drove back to the CVS that this guy was standing at, and we parked. And we walked up the little hill and walked over to the red light and shook his hand. And I introduced myself. I introduced my son. And little Trent shook his hand. And we just started to get to know his story. And we started to hear, like, his background. And, man, he was telling me about his grandkids. And, man, he, he just, like, has all these stories of his grandkids. And um, handed him the bag and told him, you know, I don't know what you like. I, hopefully this is good. We loaded it up with some stuff. And he was really excited about the Gatorade in particular. He got really excited about the Gatorade. And... Um, and so we handed him his bag and, and, you know, had a good conversation with him. And, and we got back in the car and driving back home, I was kind of unpacking this with my son and just, you know, asking him, hey, you know, buddy, what'd you think? Did you enjoy meeting uh, that gentleman? And, and do you remember his name? And, you know, all this stuff. And my son begins to ask me questions. And, and he says, why doesn't, why doesn't that man have a home? And, you know, like some concepts... You, you're just so familiar with, but then all of a sudden when you have to explain it to a three-year-old, you, you just don't even know where to start with, like, homelessness. I mean, it could be one of anything, so many things, so many decisions in life or circumstances beyond his control or, or whatever. I mean, there's just so many ways, and so I was trying to explain to him that some people have homes and some people don't, and I was trying to explain the why behind that, and he asked me where our home came from, and I was like, oh, man, like, how do I explain to him, you know, that I make money and that money like you you can you can get pre-approved for a loan and you really want to have a nice down payment and a low interest rate like you know like you're bypassing all of these things and you're really like I'm, I'm trying to keep it as simple as I could and so I just told him you know buddy Jesus has been so good good to us and our family um, Jesus has given us so many wonderful things including our home and it was quiet for a while and then my three-year-old son in the back he's processing this and he asks me he said then then why doesn't Jesus just build that gentleman a home? And man, I just remember driving. We were, we were pulling up in my driveway at the time, and, and I, I was just floored with the, the sobering effect of that question. You know, my three-year-old is processing. If he doesn't have a home and we do, 
and dad, you just said that Jesus gave us our home, then why doesn't Jesus just build him a home too? Like, you know, so simple in its logic, but so pointed in its application. I mean, it just hit my heart, and I don't, I don't know what I said. I don't think I had a good answer. I, I was um, kind of overtaken with, with pride in my son and the way he was thinking, but also just a heartbrokenness at the reality of his question. And I told that story a couple of weeks ago just to illustrate the fact that we all recognize that there is something broken in this world. There is something wrong in this world. We all recognize something's not right. If we get out of our bubble for a minute and, and, and we put down the phones for a minute and we stop scrolling and, and we just like pay attention to the world and we just poke at it for a little bit and we see so much pain and so much suffering and, and poverty and hunger and homelessness and, and terrible, terrible things and evil being done, it doesn't take long before you realize something's not right in this world. And you kind of come to the same reality my son did. Well, why doesn't Jesus just fix this? Why doesn't God just do something about this, right? Like what, like, and, and so we wrestle with this, the problem of evil is what we call it. Like if God is good, then surely he, he must hate the evil of this world. And if he's all powerful, then he could stop the evil in this world. And yet because evil continues to exist, does that nullify God's goodness or nullify his power? Because surely a, a good God who's in control would end all these things happening. Like, and so we just wrestle with the paradox of this reality. And it's heartbreaking and it's confusing, but all of us recognize something is broken in this world. My three-year-old son recognized that something is broken in this world. That man should have a home. Why doesn't Jesus just build him one? You've been there? You've ever asked that question? Maybe you've been asking it recently. God, what are you doing? And so that's, that's really the question. That's the part two of tonight. What is God doing about the brokenness in this world? Two weeks ago was the part one. We looked at the beginnings of evil. In other words, how did the world break to begin with? We looked at that. If you missed it, go listen to the podcast. Go watch our YouTube channel. Catch up. You can figure that out. That's part one. This is part two. What is God doing about the brokenness in this world? What is he doing? Is he just sitting in heaven? Is, is he concerned at all? Does he care? If he does, how do we know? How do we see evidence of him working? Is there a plan? Is all of this real? Does any of this matter? I mean, all those questions come to mind when we begin to navigate this question. What is God doing about the brokenness of this world? So the past few weeks, we have been in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in there tonight. I want to give you a quick summary of Genesis as a whole. The book is divided into two, all right? The book is divided into two. Chapters 1 through 11 are kind of this like zoomed in point of view of what God is doing in the world as a whole. And then chapters 12 through 50 it's kind of a zoomed-in point of view of God interacting with one particular family, specifically a man named Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. So the, the whole rest of the book, 12 through 50, is about God and this one family and how that kind of leads into the rest of the scriptures. But 1 through 11 is like this, this point of view of God and the world. And so we have this overview, all right? We uh, have been, I got the fancy TV again, for this, yes, thank you. I'm gonna to try to work on my penmanship as best I can. I make no promises and don't judge me. So how about that? All right, so if you guys remember, this is a quick summary of what we've been going over. 
In the beginning, if you look at Genesis 1, in the beginning, the realms of God's space and man's space were one. They were overlapping. In the beginning, God created heaven on earth. The sphere of of the celestial realm and the sphere of the earthly realm were overlapping. What Adam and Eve experienced in the beginning was a perfect harmony with God, with each other, with creation, and with themselves, the four relationships of the world. They were in perfect harmony. And because of the overlap, I'm sure they were probably seeing into the celestial realm. I I don't think it's too far-fetched to imagine that in the sky they would be seeing angelic beings and, and things like that occurring in front of them. It was heaven on earth. Two weeks ago, we talked about the great rebellion, that at some point a rebellion against God happened in the heavenly realm, and one of those rebels uh, seems to be the leader of all of the other rebels, and in Genesis 3, very mysterious story, but he takes the form of a serpent, and he is talking to Eve. Genesis simply leaves him as a serpent, but as we read the rest of the scriptures, Uh, We we get insight into this, and it seems like he is not just a serpent, but a figure of evil itself. He is a rebel. It seems like he used to be uh, kind of in God's presence as an angel, and then he rebelled, and he convinced other angels to rebel with him, and they were cast out of heaven onto earth. You might know him as the devil, all right? That's what the scriptures begin to, to refer to him as, the devil, the adversary, the father of lies, the king of death, things like that, all right? They have many titles for him throughout the scriptures. And so in the beginning, God is creating good and order in the midst of darkness and chaos. We've, we looked at that for weeks and weeks and weeks. If you miss those sermons, Go and listen to the podcast. Go and watch YouTube, all right? Because it lays the foundation of what God was doing. He, he plunged himself into darkness and chaos and began to create good and order. In the beginning, the earth was uninhabitable. It, it was chaotic and wild, and God began to create structure and order, and it was good. And in the beginning, as he created Adam and Eve in perfect harmony, as he created mankind with him, He appointed them, he shared his authority with them and appointed them to rule and rest with him. So he gave Adam and Eve jobs to do, not only name the animals, but also contribute to the good that I have been making. In other words, words, start to build upon the foundation of good that I've laid. And one of the commandments he gives to them is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and contribute to the good that I have made. The expectation of Adam and Eve uh, was to reproduce, was to fill the earth and to train their kids in this perfect harmony in the ways of a relationship with God and to contribute through the shared authority that God had given them to rule and, re- to rule and rest with God to contribute to the good in this earth. God has always desired to share his authority with us so that we can rule and rest with him forever, to constantly contribute to the good on this planet. The serpent comes along, the rebel comes along, some rebellion was happening in this, oh, that's the eraser. Like I said, don't judge me. Okay, that was laid. The foundation has been laid. Don't laugh, don't laugh, don't judge me. Okay, I'm already, uh, uh. okay. So somewhere in the celestial realm, that's the celestial realm, okay? Somewhere we have like, see, you guys, all right, we've got angels somewhere. If you draw two legs on a butterfly, it's an angel, okay? That's the rule. 
All right, so somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the celestial realm, we have this rebellion happening, and they and one of them takes on the form. Okay, this is a serpent. Okay, very threatening, menacing-looking serpent. One of them takes on the form of a serpent and comes into this uh, paradise, comes into heaven on earth and has a conversation with Eve. Do you guys remember how um, the devil tempted Eve? To question God's word. Yes, to question God's word, contradict God's authority, conquer God's supremacy. That's right. God didn't say that. He won't do that. You can be like God. And he's tempting us the exact same way today. And remember, two weeks ago, we talked about the tree. You guys remember the tree? I'm not even going to draw it because you guys are going to give me a hard time. Uh, The tree, the knowledge of good and evil in the garden was both literal and metaphorical. It literally was there, but it represented something more than just a tree. This is where like a lot of Christians read this story and they're like, dude, what is happening? You've got Adam and, and, and they have one rule and then there's this talking snake. I don't get what's going on. And we've just heard so many things about Genesis over the years and creation. And we just focus on kind of all these like weird angles. And we've heard that Maybe God created the world in seven days. Maybe it was 7,000 years. Who, like we've just heard all these weird debates going on for years and we've kind of lost what the author is desiring to get across. The tree is literal, but it's also metaphorical. The tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolically is representing for Adam and Eve, will you trust God to define what good and evil is for you in the relationship with him? Or will you reach out and for yourselves take control, desiring autonomy and individuality? Will you decide that you don't trust how God defines it? Will you decide that you want to define it? And that's the argument the serpent had with Eve, and she bought it, and she uh, bit the fruit, shared with her husband. They decided they wanted to define good and evil for themselves, not trusting God. They joined, they were the first humans to join this spiritual rebellion. It was already ongoing, and they stepped into it. And part of the punishment for them was now every human born after that is by default a rebel. By default, we have joined the rebellion against God. It's not permanent. Jesus has made a way out. But by default, we're in the rebellion. That was part of the consequence of their decision. You can choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequence. When Eve looked at a piece of fruit, I don't think she had any idea what she was about to do. You can choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequence. So they bit it, and heaven on earth became heaven and earth. The realms separated. We talked about this all throughout this series. The realms separated. All throughout the Old Testament, God is bringing these realms closer together. He's giving things to us. He's given us his word. The Spirit of God is working in the Old Testament. He's given the commandments. He's instructed them how to worship and um, design the temple and tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, his presence, his glory, the Exodus providing for them all throughout the wilderness, miracles, 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 wisdom writing, psalms, prophets, foretelling and forthtelling the word of God. Like all throughout the Old Testament, we see the realms coming together and together and together, but they don't overlap until Jesus. When Jesus came, first thing he said in the Gospel of Matthew, first thing he starts his public ministry off with is the kingdom of God is at hand. He has brought the domain, the realm of heaven back and overlapped it with our realm again. And the narrative of the scriptures is one day they will be fully overlapped again in the new heaven and new earth. The final page of Revelation talks about this idea. It's not a garden, it's a city. But they will be overlapped again. That's the narrative. So all throughout Genesis, you have these things happening. 
So you have Adam and Eve, and they rebel. Then their children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. He joins the rebellion. And then you have kind of some odd stories going on in Genesis 5. Some like genealogies, and here and there we see some evil still continuing to persist in this planet. They've joined the rebellion. And then Genesis 6, we have a very strange, arguably one of the most bizarre passages of Scripture. Some of you know what I'm about to say. Some of you are about to be introduced to something bizarre. But Genesis 6, we get another glimpse into what seems like another rebellion against God in the heavenly realms. And it says that the sons of God, which could be translated as the fallen angels, the sons of God rebelling against God came to earth and saw the daughters of men as desirable and reproduced with them, creating this like hybrid race of kind of giant, powerful kings on this earth. Now, if you're like, dude, what the heck are you talking about? Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. You can go read all about it. They were called the Nephilim. It was a race of giants. They were powerful. And it seems like the angelic rebellion came to earth, saw women as attractive, impregnated them. And now we have this hybrid race going on. It's like, what? Genesis is weird, y'all. Like talking snakes, angelic, half baby, half, half, half baby, half human, half, <laughs> half angels, super beast people, like a unit, right? Like, all right, so we have these like super powerful kings going on, but they are part of the rebellion. Like the way the scriptures present them, they should not be honored. They're not good. They've joined the rebellion. And then uh, we get this story in Genesis 6 where God's heart is so grieved at the increasing evil in this world. And so a flood comes and he chooses a family, Noah and his family, to preserve the goodness. But wouldn't you know it, after the flood subsides, uh, Noah has this very shameful incident um, and, and again, the garden is repeated again. Uh, and literally, like Noah finds himself naked and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve. And so one of the repeating patterns in the book of Genesis is that God desires a relationship with his people, and he's created perfect harmony for us to live in that relationship, and we continue to absolutely blow it. Every turn, we blow it. And God showers us with grace and gives us grace and still pursues us and still seeks us and he gives opportunity again and we blow it. And God showers us with grace and pursues us and seeks us and gives us opportunity to be in relationship with him again and we blow it. We join the rebellion. That is the ongoing pattern in the book of Genesis. And then we get to chapter 11. This is kind of the final chapter before the book zooms in on Abraham. Remember, 12 through 50 is all about Abraham and his family. We get to chapter 11, and we are confronted with this very strange but very familiar story of the Tower of Babel. You guys ever heard of this? Yeah, Tower of Babel. Anyone ever heard of this? Yes? Okay. You guys with me? Okay. The Tower of Babel. Um, Thank you, Preston. That late, yeah, really encouraged me there. All right, so Genesis 11. Let's go there. Genesis 11. We're going to read the story of the Tower of Babel. You've at least heard of this story, possibly, maybe, I think. If you haven't, welcome. All right, this is Genesis 11. If you've heard of it and you know it, great. Hopefully this will be a refresher for you and you may learn something new here. 11 verse 1. Now the whole earth at that time had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. The word Babel uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for confuse. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. All right, that's, that's the story. Now, we're not answering the question, what is God doing about it? I just want us to, to really understand how evil has progressed, okay? So if you've ever heard this story before, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. It's like, dude, what's God is like in a mood? You know what I mean? Like God is, is like cranky that day. He just saw some people building a tower and decided, let's just go. Man, we're going to give them Italian. We're going to give them French. We're going to give them some like Portuguese over here. We're going to give them German. Have fun over there. We're going to give them Japanese. Like, all these languages, God says, I ain't, y'all ain't building a tower. Like, dude, God, what's your problem? You don't like architecture? Like, what's the deal, man? Does God look at the Eiffel Tower with disdain? You know, like, why does God seem so upset about what's going on in this story? It's confusing. Have you ever camped on this story, the Tower of Babel? Camped on it, studied it, connected it to Genesis 1 and these patterns that are going on to see maybe the bigger picture? So one of the things we see in Genesis 10 is that the king constructing this tower is named Nimrod. And Nimrod was the first mighty man uh, on the earth descending from those uh, kings we talked about, the mighty kings who are already in the rebellion. Nimrod decides he and a bunch of other nations want to come together and construct this tower. All right, so this is an accurate portrayal this is a, an archaeological portrayal of everything that was going on. They discovered it underground, and this is an exact detailed drawing. So this is what's happening, all right? You have King Nimrod, and he and a bunch of other nations decide to come together. All right, those are the red arrows. All right, I'm going to explain it. Those are the red arrows. All these nations gathering together in one place. Why is that bad? Well, it's a lot of people, yeah. I mean, if you're an introvert, it's like, <laughs> God cursed them, right? Like, no, why is that bad, though? Why is that bad? Yes. Okay, a lot of food, a lot of disease. You guys are thinking very practically. Why is this part of the rebellion? Yes. Yes, you both said it. The first commandment given to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful, multi multiply, and fill the earth. In other words, take the goodness of my relationship with you. Contribute to the good of the earth. Contribute to making my name known and fill the earth. And here we have a bunch of nations coming together, adamantly saying, let's look at their words, Genesis chapter 11, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for who? God? Ourselves. This is, all, this is a vanity project. It's all about themselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The whole point of this project was to establish themselves so well that they would not have to spread out. 
over the face of the earth. The exact opposite of what God commanded Adam and Eve. So you see, it's not just simply like, oh, people are building. Why does God get so mad? This is part of the rebellion. So, so time is like fast forwarded. Technology has advanced. They have the ability at this point in history to mass produce bricks and mortar. They're able to build large cities. And this King Nimrod, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for rebel, by the way, none of this is accidental. Like the author of Genesis wants us to get this picture that the king of the rebels has gathered all the rebels into one place and they are declaring, we don't want to fill the earth. We don't want to spread across the earth. How can we stay in one place? Let's construct a city so powerful and so big. In fact, let's prove that we don't need God because we can build ourselves up to God. We can be on his level and then some. Let us build a tower all the way up to the skies or in other words, all the way up to God to prove that we don't need him. King Rebel gathered the rebels to stay in one spot to make a name for themselves and prove that they can do what God can do. Does that sound like another rebellion that we've already talked about? It sounds like the angelic rebellion. Someone wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to prove they didn't need God. They wanted to prove that they were self-made, self-established. Genesis 11 is not some weird random story about a city that was being built and God's like not languages like it is so much more going on it's a direct picture of them joining the rebellion and not contributing to the good that God has made but deciding to make a name for themselves by staying in one spot and building their way up this this act of arrogance we don't need God we can be God it's a rebellion make no mistake Genesis 11 is a rebellion against a holy God. So they're trying to make a name for themselves, building this tower, gathering all people here. God looks at this, again, will you allow me to define good and evil or will you take it for yourself? He looks at this and he's like, no, guys, this is not the way. And in an act of mercy, and you say, mercy, why is this merciful? I think it's because, I think it's because God knew that this city would be a nightmare to live in full of evil, full of corruption and evil, with evil people. And so in an act of mercy, he spreads them out, confuses their language. Moses, by the way, looks back on this incident and says that's when God gave them over to worship the gods of this world, power and sex and military might. That's when God gave them over to, and it's the first time anyone ever refers to them this way, that's when God gave them over to the demons the lesser spiritual beings. Moses is reflecting on this later in his writings and calls this the time when God said, you want to rebel against me again? Fine. And refers to this as a demonic thing, spiritual thing. Now, I think by now, after last week and up to this point, I hopefully have laid an argument of how evil has prevailed in this world. And you guys already know, you don't have to look far to realize something is broken in this world. This pattern has repeated itself all throughout history. People have come together, gotten to the conclusion, we don't need God, we can make a name for ourselves, we can build something, whether it's a city or a reputation or a status or a company or whatever, absent of God. Evil repeats itself. So back to our question, okay, but what is God doing about it? Does he care? 
He created a bunch of languages. That's kind of cool. If you're bilingual in here, you're like, yo, muchas gracias, right? Like, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the gift. But does he care? Is he doing anything to fix the evil? All right, now, now, remember, okay, remember, Jesus has come and created an overlap of these two realms, so it's actually like this, right? Like, we've talked about this a lot. We're in the overlap because of the cross. So, Jesus has created the overlap. What is God doing? All right, let's look. Acts chapter 2. This is after Jesus came. Jesus has instructed his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, he's told them, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my message carriers. In Jerusalem, your own backyard, in Judea, the area surrounding Jerusalem, in Samaria, a, a, a city further out from Judea, and in all the earth, you will be my witnesses. Jesus has given them this idea. You will, going back all the way to the book of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, you will spread out across the globe. You will take my message and spread it across the world. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples have received that instruction from Jesus. They're gathered together. They're praying. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Some crazy stuff going on. Not a talking serpent, but we got tongues on fire. All right, we can admit, this is a little weird. That happened to me. I would run. Tongues on fire were resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All of these men in this room are Jewish. They are not bilingual. They're, they're not multilingual. They're, they're not multi-ethnic. They're all Jewish they all speak one language. The Spirit comes on them as fiery tongues and rushing wind. They're filled with the Spirit, and they just start speaking in languages they've never studied. They didn't download Duolingo, all right? They, they are just filled with the Spirit, and they are uttering all the languages in that moment. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So in the city of Jerusalem... There are people from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So like, like literally, people were chilling. Like they're living in the city, and they're walking down the street, and they're doing their morning routine, and they're like, yo, I'm going to the baker's, and I bought a baguette. And then all of a sudden, they're hearing like, French. Anyone speak French in here? We, we. Je parle un peu français, okay? So they're, they're hearing this French coming out of the window. And they're like, yo, who's speaking my language here? And they're walking down the street, and they're hearing Spanish. Anyone speak Spanish in here? I know there's got to be some Spanish speakers. Yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. They're walking down the street. Yes, come on, Christina. I need you here. They're walking down the street, and they're hearing their tongue, and they're like, someone, anyone, Spanish speakers? Como estas? <laughs> wow, I have, I've just gotten the gift of tongues. How are you? <laughs> that is what I would say for sure. No, they're hearing it, man. They're hearing, un regalo para su familia, porque es bonita y su familia es bonita. Like they're hearing all this wonderful stuff. Like, oh my goodness, what, who's speaking my language? 
They're walking down the street. Someone from Turkey is in Jerusalem. Anyone speak Turkish? Really? Merhaba. Naklish. Merhaba. Naklishe. Gule gule. They're hearing their language. I said hello. They're hearing their language. They're like, whoa, what is happening? Got an Italian in the mix. Anyone speak Italian? Spaghetti. Pizza. Prego. American. L'Italia, L'Italia mi piace molto. Gesù dice, io sono la via, la verità e la vita. They're hearing this wonderful language pouring out of this room. And everybody in the city is thinking, everybody in the city is thinking, how, how is my language being spoken right now? How am I hearing my language? And so all these people begin to gather together and they're calling their family together. The multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these speaking Galileans? In other words, are are all of these speaking not like from the area? Like, dude, what is going, like they didn't have some like trip in college, right? Like they didn't have a study abroad. Like, aren't they from here? How are they speaking my language? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome and both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? What is going on in this story? And then others, <laughs> others just made fun of them saying, ah, they're filled with new wine. <laughs> like, hey, they've been hitting the hooch a little bit. <laughs> okay, even if that were true, I've never known anyone start drinking some wine and just rolling out the gift of tongues. You know what I mean? Like, okay, well, even if wine it did induce this, something's happening here. What does it mean? So what does it mean? So everyone gathers together. They're wondering what it means. Peter launches into a sermon. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And people from all over the world are hearing this message in their own native tongue as God is giving the gift of tongues. Peter preaches a message about Jesus. The scriptures say that 3,000 people decided to believe in Jesus right then and there. 3,000. That's about the size of our church. 3,000. Now look at this. Let's look at, let's look at what defined their way of life as these early believers began to grow. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Just skip ahead a little bit. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day to day those who were being saved. This is a summary passage about the normal factors that were defining this group of growing believers. Look at what's normal. They met together regularly. They were in fellowship. They had community. They had unity among each other. There weren't divisions. There wasn't slander. There wasn't gossip. There wasn't all these like backstabbing things going on. They had unity among each other. They sold their possessions and basically created a pot of money. And then if anyone had need of anything, oh, you need help? You need help? Yo, we got the pot. We got, <laughs> we got a pot of money. Guys, bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. That's a youth pastor mistake. We have money. You're in need, you're in need, you're in need. Yeah, we just sold our TV, man. Take the proceeds, feed your family. Really, what? I, I know it's crazy, man, but we've been shown radical generosity through the blood and grace of Jesus Christ and we just wanna repay that any way we can. Man, if you need something else, let us know. I'll sell something else in my home, I don't care. Like the early church was defined by gathering together, sharing meals with one another in one another's homes, in the spirit of unity, worshiping together, radical generosity because they've been given radical generosity. And they did many signs and wonders. You know what that means? They were doing miracles all over the place. In fact, the very next story is about a, a crippled man who was healed by the apostles going out and doing these signs and wonders. In other words, what was going on is the believers coming together to worship Jesus were being filled with the Spirit and then going out, and guess what they were doing? Contributing to the good in the midst of the darkness and chaos in this world. It's the same thing God did in Genesis 1. In the darkness and chaos, God created light and goodness. And then he shared that authority with Adam and Eve to rule and rest with him forever, to contribute to the good that he is doing in this world. The early church caught that vision and filled with the Spirit. They weren't focused on themselves. They weren't focused on their status. They weren't focused on trying to build an Instagram brand. They weren't focused on all those things. They were focused on the needs of the world because we have been so radically changed by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And they started to contribute to the good of this world. In other words, they partnered with what God was already doing in the world. And now they were just a part of it. So look at what's going on. Check this out. This is historically accurate. Okay? It's historically accurate. This is Acts chapter 2. All right? This is Tower of Babel. Good question. Check it out. Tower of Babel. Nations coming together. Build a name for ourselves. Establish a kingdom for ourselves up to the skies. Look at Acts chapter 2. People gathered in one spot are hearing a message in their own language that it's not a kingdom that we build up, but it's a kingdom that's already come down. That's what Jesus said. That this kingdom is not one that we build. It's already been built. The skies have come down to us. And it's not King Nimrod, the rebel. It's King Jesus. Jesus' name means the God of salvation or the God of rescue. And that this kingdom is now coming down, and it's not people gathering to themselves so they can stay in one spot. The kingdom has come down and dispersed to people everywhere all over the globe. Or in other words, let's, let's look at it like this. Here's a slide contrasting Genesis chapter 11 and Acts chapter 2. Check this out. 
We're going to have it here in a second. There it is. Okay, check it out. Tower of Babel story. Everyone was settled in one location. Acts chapter 2, they were gathered to worship. Babel spoke one language. Acts, every language. Babel built a kingdom up to God or up to the sky. Acts, the kingdom has come down to us. Babel, make a name for ourselves. Book of Acts, now we make the name of Jesus known. Babel, avoid being dispersed. Book of Acts, the followers are dispersing themselves across the globe. Babel, what does God do? He disperses them and and scatters them across the globe. What does God do through the gospel? He unites people everywhere across the globe. Doesn't gather them in one spot, not yet at least, but he unites them by the message and saving grace of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, I believe, is a direct parallel with what's going on in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, you have a story of a king rebel gathering other rebels to build a name for themselves and establish a kingdom for themselves up to the sky because they don't need God and they can define good and evil for themselves. Acts chapter 2, you see the culmination of God's glory where God gathers his people that speak all languages now, gives the gift of tongues to speak to them in any language now about a message where the kingdom has come down to make the name of Jesus known so that that message of hope is now dispersed across the globe and doesn't scatter people but unites people under the banner of Jesus Christ. So back to our question, what is God doing about the evil in this world? God is doing and is continuing to do what he has been ever since Genesis chapter 3 when men and women decided to join the rebellion. God is pursuing, God is persistent, and God is moving behind the scenes. And we had then in Genesis 3, and we have now today, a choice. Do you want to join him in his plan to heal this world? Do you want to join God and contribute to the good that he's already doing to fix the problems of this world? See, one of the things I've learned as I've talked to people over the years, they get hung up on this like, man, evil is everywhere. What's God doing about it? Man, come on. God is doing what he's always done. He's healing. He's fixing. He's repairing. It's typically people that are the problem, right? Like anybody can just sit there, cross their arms, and point to the news or whatever and talk about how messed up this world is. But when's the last time you got out of your chair? When's the last time you sold your new iPhone to get a six, $700 check, go cash it in, and give it to homeless people or poor people? That's what the early church was doing. When's the last time you've noticed a problem with someone and you said, you know what would really, I think, fix them? It's not a quick fix or immediate solution. I bet it's a long-term friendship. I should probably invite them over to my house maybe once a month over the next year and just try to build a relationship with them. Show them hospitality and generosity. Let's see what that does. When's the last time you've done that? The whole argument of the problem of evil, it's not invalid, but what I have found is it's like the mega picture, right? Like, look how jacked up the world is, and that is true. But it's like, okay, dude, like, let's talk. What are you doing in your own backyard? Like, I'm not expecting you to solve world hunger, but just talk to me. Like, what are you doing in your own street? Do you know the names of your neighbors? Like, do you know the people in the houses in your row, at least? Do you know the names of their families? Have you been praying for them? Do you invite them over? Do you go over to their house? 
Do you build relationships? Do you, do you talk about Jesus with them? Because if we believe he's the light and hope of this world, then the only way to fix this broken world is to give Jesus to people and contribute to the good through our acts of service. God's already doing it. The question is, will we partner with him? And if the answer is like, no, I don't. It's okay, there's grace. But I think sometimes we are guilty of blaming God for the brokenness of this world when we ourselves are not willing to contribute to fix our next door neighbor. Something's wrong with that formula. You guys see that? It's easy to blame God about the chaos in the world and ignore someone on our street who's hurting and not do a thing about it. So here's what I think God is doing. I think it's what he's been doing, but here's what I think God is doing. I think God is actively at work in the healing of this world by repairing and preparing both people and place. I know that's a little complex, so I'm going to say it again. I'm going to break it down. I think God is actively at work in the healing of this world by repairing and preparing both people and place. So when we look at the message of the Bible, we see time and time again, God desires a relationship with us. He pursues us, persists in his relationship and love for us, showers us with grace. And then what do we do? We join the rebellion. God bestows even more grace and continually persists and pursues us. And what do we do? We continue to rebel. The whole message of the scriptures is that one day, Jesus came and brought the realm of heaven, brought the, the, the domain of the kingdom and overlapped it with earth. And one day, we will be brought into a new heaven and earth. That's one day. But right now, we live in this overlap, right? Where we're feeling the realities of heaven. That's why Jesus instructed us, hey, when you pray, pray like this. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are, we are ushering in the realities of heavenly culture in an earthly domain. Like we're in the overlap. We, we're tasting the sweetness of heaven, but we're tasting the sorrows of earth. We're in this weird overlap right now. And God could have at any point in history been like, all right, enough. You guys have blown it one too many times. I'm so tired of giving you grace and grace and grace and grace and you just blowing it. Enough. And yet we don't see him do that. We see him continually persist, continually make a way, continually build relationships with us. So God is actively at work in the healing of this world by repairing people, helping us see the light and hope and healing found in Jesus, but also preparing a place. The message of the scriptures is that there is hope. There's hope in the next life, there's hope in the world to come, and there's hope here and now because we can taste the realities of that through our relationship with Jesus and then share the realities of that in a broken and hurting world. The Christian life was never meant to be one where you come to church once a week as a ritual or a routine or a habit or a pattern and then don't live any of that out. Meanwhile, observe all the problems with the world and never feel like you have a place to contribute. The message that we see in the scriptures is that God is desiring to repair his relationship with his people and prepare a place for us to belong one day. But in the meantime, to partner with him in what he's doing in this world. Because the world is broken. There is evil. There is suffering. 
A couple of weeks ago, I said, man, if you think you have a high standard, go read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you hate the problem of evil in this world, Jesus hates it more. If you have a problem with, with children suffering and being abducted and being trafficked, Jesus hates that even more. Go read what he has to say about lust and the root of lust. If you have a problem with violence and hatred and murder and genocide and suffering over the world, Jesus hates that even more. Go, go read what he has to say about anger in your heart towards someone. Any standard we could possibly have, Jesus has a higher one. And he's sharing, just like in the book of Genesis, God shared his authority with Adam and Eve to rule and rest with him forever. Jesus is sharing his authority with us. This is how Matthew chapter 28 ends. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go. I'm giving you authority to go and make disciples, teach them what I've taught you, contribute to the goodness in this world and in the midst of darkness and chaos. What is God doing about the brokenness in this world? He's actively at work in the healing process of this world by repairing his relationship with people and preparing them to join him in what he's doing for the final place he's preparing. Christianity was never meant to be some idle faith where we just believe in Jesus and then kind of wait till we die. If you see a problem, if you see brokenness on a grand scale or a personal scale, if you see people that live next door to you and they are hurting and they are struggling and they are suffering, Next time you see them outside, just go over and introduce yourself. Learn their name. Learn their story. Start partnering with Jesus, contributing to the good of this world by simply showing someone value because they're a person. Start giving yourself away, your time, your money, your attention. Just because you're teenagers does not mean that you're useless by any means. I've said this many times, but the disciples that we read about in the Gospels were not full-grown men. The disciples that followed Jesus, Peter, James, John, the 12 disciples, were teenage boys. They were 13, 14, 15 years old. Your age does not disqualify you from being world changers. The only thing that disqualifies you is your perspective, where we shift all the blame on God, even though throughout history he's been the one holding things together as best he can and inviting you to join him. Will you join Jesus in the repairing of this hurt and broken world? Will you repair the relationship you have with God through faith in Jesus? And will you join him in contributing to the good in the midst of darkness and chaos? That was the plan from the very beginning. We see it on Genesis page 1. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and God created good, and then shared the authority to contribute to creation with Adam and Eve. Will you contribute? Will you share in Jesus' authority to continue to do good in this world? How is God fixing the world? What is he doing about it? He is calling his people to join him in the healing process. That's what he's doing. Will you join him? Seriously, think about the question. Will you join him in that process? What would it mean for you? What would it mean you might have to give up? What would it mean you might have to change? What questions might you have to ask? What decisions might you have to make? What can you do in your stage of life right here and now in Greenville, South Carolina to contribute to the good that God is doing in this city? What if we began to pray, not your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What if we began to pray, God, your kingdom come in Greenville as it is in heaven? 
and allow that to stir our souls. What might that mean for you? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for what we see in your scriptures, that there is a plan, that we serve a God who's in control. The scriptures say that you created everything by the power of your word and that you hold all things together by the power of your word. There is a plan. You are in control. You hate evil just as much and more than we do. In fact, the scriptures say you've got a plan and a place where all evil will go one day. But in the meantime, you have called us, you've invited us to join you, Jesus, to share the hope and the light, to be contributors to good in this world, to live beyond ourselves, to live selflessly, to live sacrificially with our time and our money and our energy and our talents, to use them to serve others and to help and to heal this world and to join you in what you're doing. We only have such a brief moment on this planet to do that. Father, would you, would you give us a vision to partner with you? Would you give us a conviction to share in the good of this world? To get out there and walk with you. Bring others into a relationship with you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. Amen.